Hi, everyone, and welcome to season three of the Business of Freelancing podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing freelancing 101. Is it for you? What does it mean to be a freelancer? I'm Ruben Lerner, and with me is Eric Dietrich. Hey, everybody. And we are back for a new season of lots of freelancing info, background, ideas, and guests. As I said, this episode, we're going to be talking about what does it mean to be a freelancer? What do you need to know? And is it really for you? So Eric, let me pose the question to you. What does it mean to be a freelancer versus having a real job? So for me, freelancing in the broadest sense is the idea that you're not working a salaried job. So your basic unit of work for a living goes from being the job to the gig. And it can take a number of different forms. Like the most basic sense of this is that you stop having guaranteed work and instead you're doing engagements, gigs, whatever you want to call it. So you work for yourself. I think of freelancers as people who are their own bosses. Does that square with your understanding of the world? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I remember maybe 10 years ago, I said to my kids, most grownups go to the same place and work with the same people every day. And they were like, no, because <laughs> as far as they knew, like I've been freelancing since before any of them were born, since before I was married. And so from their perspective, work is this thing that I do in my office at home or that I go when there's no pandemic, fly around the world or just go to different cities and, and do. But this notion of working with the same people on the same things for a long period of time and then getting paid by that organization, that's a completely foreign concept to them that I still don't think they quite get. But right, that's what we're doing. We are fulfilling all of those parts of it. And it's more risk, certainly. Well, actually, I don't even know, certainly. I'm not convinced that it's more risk than it was. But I think there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of freedom. Just another quick story. When I was in graduate school, working the PhD, I had already been freelancing for let's call it 15 years at that time. And uh, I had to ask my advisor if I could take vacation time to spend time with my family. So I said, oh, we want to go away the last two weeks in July. And he said, no. I was like, what do you mean? He said, no, that doesn't work for me. And I started crying, both because I'm that kind of guy and because this was the first time in 15 years that I had to ask anyone when I was going to go on vacation and get approval. It was just completely <laughs> foreign to me as an idea. What happened at the very beginning of your career? Did you have salaried work? Yeah, yeah. The story is basically that I was in this program uh, when I was an undergrad at MIT that in theory leads to both a master's degree and a job. So you do this internship during the summers and then you do a fifth year, get a master's, and then you go work for that company. But I did not get into the master's program. So the company I was working with, HP, basically offered me a job anyway. I'd interned there for like two summers, three summers, and I worked there for about two years. Then I moved to New York, worked for Time Warner, and then I moved to Israel. And just before moving to Israel, the people Time Warner said, what are you going to do? And I said, freelancing. And they said, oh, would you like us to be your first clients? So I had the softest landing possible, although <laughs> my impression is that's how a lot of freelancers and consultants get their start, where they work for their former employer. I worked with them for, what was it, four years on that basis. And that was almost like seed funding for my consulting business as I figured out what I wanted to do and how I was going to do it. Sure. I had a longer stint in the salaried world, I guess probably 11 years Post-college, I worked other jobs. I was a software engineer for a lot of years, then a senior engineer architect. Eventually, my last role salaried was a CIO. And I also boomeranged my last employer into being an initial consulting client, stayed on in an advisory capacity to help them for a while. And this was all now eight years ago. Can that be right? 
Something like that, yeah. So I had a similar change from salary to, to the freelance world. And it strikes me too, one of the things as I think back on that, it's getting further and further in my rear view mirror now, but one of the main like psychological differences I think between having a job and being a freelancer is that with a job, you have this identity that can get wrapped up in the company. Like you feel the company you work for is almost an aspect of your personality, or at least a lot of people do, especially like Silicon Valley. You know, you'll hear people talk like, oh, I'm ex-Google current Amazon or whatever. There's this, I guess, identification, this sense of belonging perhaps to a culture that then becomes not really a thing that you have going so much as a freelancer. It's so funny you say that because I've noticed that more and more like people are really excited to be like employees of whatever company they're at. And I just think that's weird, but they think of it as normal. In fact, just recently, so scrolling through Facebook, I saw someone I know who was working for years at a big company in Israel. And then he switched over to another big company. And he's now advertising for that new big company saying, this is the best place to work ever. I'm so happy to be a part of this company's family. He brings on his wife and children. And they say, we're so proud of our dad and our husband because he's part of this family. And he says, come work for the best company in Israel where I'm working now. I'm thinking if you had asked him this two years ago, he would have said, oh no, it was the previous company, <laughs> right? It's definitely part of his identity of where he is. And in, in many ways, I actually see that, I guess I am also one with my company because my company is basically me, but I also feel like I have this freedom, especially because I'm working with open source stuff. I can say XYZ is bad. Right. Like these people who are working for a company, they can't ever get up in public and say, my company made a stupid decision or this is a really <laughs> bad design because they won't be with that company for much longer. But it does give you a sense of group and belonging, which many people want for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I wasn't even thinking of that specifically as something to bring up, but certainly that's relevant. If you're somebody who identifies strongly with like a company's culture and you do feel this sense of camaraderie, that's going to be something that's missing as a freelancer. You know, you could start a business you know, as an agency and grow your own own, or you could get into professional groups or associations. Like there's ways that you can achieve that kind of thing, but it's not baked in the way it is with the corporate experience, especially at like larger or certain types of companies, but that could be something that's missing. I guess we can get into that a little bit more later too, is like maybe run through some of the decision points that you might make, but it seems like it'd be helpful to talk about different flavors of freelancing and then, you know, what day-to-day -day is like so that as you're listening to us talk about who might want to do it, you have some frame of mind for what freelancing is like as you I mean, you haven't started already. So what are the different flavors of freelancer? It's not all just like one homogenous scene. So maybe we should talk about that a little bit. Yeah. And it took me a long time, even like several years into freelancing to understand that it was not all the same. Because I figured, oh, everyone is just, instead of being a programmer on the staff of this company, you're a programmer who comes in as like a hired gun. And that might be a common one. That might be the first thing that many people, especially the tech world, think of. But there are many variations on it. So what I just described is sometimes known derisively as staff augmentation. So like a company has a team of five programmers, but that's not enough. They need 10 programmers. But for whatever reasons, they can't find five new programmers. And maybe if, even if they could, they want to be able to get rid of them when the project is over and they don't have to deal with severance and legal stuff. So they need a bunch of programmers now to come in, be like a SWAT team, solve the problems, and then they'll go away. And that's super, super common. That was certainly the first kind of freelancing. That's what I did. I met people doing that. But the big headline, good and bad, is there's a lot of demand. So it's not that hard to find work, but it's also not as specialized. And so you typically won't make as much. 
It's a pretty gentle runway for anyone listening from being employed because the nature of a staff augmentation is essentially employee-like. So a lot of the paradigms for landing that work are the same. They might interview you. You'll probably come on for, you know, it won't be forever, but it's an unspecified period of time in a lot of cases. You know, come on on a contract and that contract might go on for months or even years. You will kind of have a boss at that company. So a lot of things are familiar, but the difference is you're kind of on your own for benefits. You're going to command a higher rate. You are crucially going to be more expendable. That's just the nature of the game. That's why you get a higher rate. You are your own boss, but there are a lot of aspects of it that can look like being a salaried employee. I'm guessing why it's so common as a first stop or a first kind of freelancing, just because it's familiar. You can get a lot of help with sites, you know, like Upwork or what have you. There are a lot of mechanisms out there to help with the things that may be coming out of the employed world you're not good at, which we can get into here a little bit later. But maybe a pro and con is like how much it's like being employed because on the one hand it's familiar on the other hand it's what you're trying to get away from and look if you're employed at a company then you have that nice feeling of every month or every two weeks or whatever it is in the country you're dealing with that you get a paycheck and so with this sort of staff augmentation it's similar at the end of the month you invoice them and then they do a bank transfer or send you a paycheck whatever it's going to be but you're paid monthly just as if you were an employee just at a different rate under a different sort of contractual relationship some people would say oh it feels great because I'm making more money and yet I have the stability of employment. And there's definitely something to that. Yeah. And if you're thinking of going this route, put in for work on Upwork or other sites, but there's also agencies that like Robert Half in the US is an example that broker this kind of staff augmentation. So you go and you register with this agency and they'll go out and look to place you and find you gigs. And so in a sense, it's like working. Well, I guess you'd call Robert Half like a recruitment agency, but you can subcontract for these agencies or you can go direct to your clients. Typically, what I've seen is you'll go the subcontracting route if you're generally being placed with larger firms, because a lot of larger firms don't want to deal with freelancers directly. So they'll bring on this agency to sort of serve as a middleman to go out and do recruiting. And then they're only dealing with the agency and it's the agency that's paying you. And that can be a pretty reliable way to always keep your pipeline full if you have one or more agencies that you do subcontract with they're constantly out looking to place you. So they will be coming to you and saying, you know, I have this contract at such and such place. Are you interested? But again, you know, that starts to feel similar to like working with recruiters as a salaried employee. And they're taking like a large chunk of it, right? So basically, let's put it this way, you subcontract for an agency and the agency is bringing in, let's call it $200 an hour for your work. There's no way on God's great earth you're going to be getting $200 an hour. They'll probably take even half of it. And they might be right to say, we need to spend lots of time going out and talking to these companies and marketing you and finding out where there are opportunities. So it's that trade-off, right? Are you interested in doing all of your own marketing and spending time doing it and thus not making money doing that? Or are you interested in having someone else do that for you? You have to remember that if you are working as a programmer 40 hours a week, then it's going to be in addition to those 40 hours a week, you have to do the other stuff. And we'll talk about that a bit later as well. So what are some other, I guess, ways that you see um, freelance work going or kind of other flavors of freelancing that you see? I mean, I can think of some, but, you know, others on your mind here. My big one, the one I've been doing for a good number of years now is training. I sort of slowly oozed into that, as it were, where I was doing some pro programming for a company, like really when I started about 25 years ago. And at some point, they said to me, we don't want you to do this programming. We want you to teach us how to do this programming. I was like, oh, okay. So I was always doing a little bit of that kind of training over time. And then I discovered there's a whole world of corporate training. And there are people who do this. And now I'm one of them, where just about every day, I work with a different company, teaching a different 
different course. So I have a stable of like, I don't know, 25 different courses I can teach now. And companies call me up and say, are you available the first week in December to teach a group of 20 people advanced Python? I check my calendar and either yes or no. And so I'm not developing new software and I'm definitely not doing something they would have in-house. This is like they have an accountant and they have a lawyer or many accountants, many lawyers. They have me to do Python training and that's the sort of thing that I come in and do. And so I work with many companies doing this. I quite frankly found this to be super fulfilling as well as lucrative in part because their pricing structure assumes that you're working with an agency and that the agency is taking half and they still need to pay you reasonably. So by doing it on my own, I'm able to take both halves of that. Of course, that means I do have to market myself. I do have to get my name out, all those things I just mentioned. But if you have skills and you enjoy speaking in front of people, then teaching those skills to others is definitely a way to go. It's not a super popular thing to do. It's not unheard of by any stretch of the imagination. I know a few dozen people probably do that. So I might like, if I think about it, zoom out and call training a productized service. And what I mean by that for anyone listening is a productized service has elements of both being a product and a service, which sounds weird since freelancing is almost by definition, I would say service delivery, like your offer and your labor as a service. But a productized service is one that you package up and sell the way you might a product. So like with training, there's going to be a flat pricing structure or like a tiered pricing structure, depending on certain options that are configured. And then another one I can throw in there is what my business hit subscribe. We have engineers the right content for companies that are marketing to engineers and selling blog posts or selling, you know, campaigns and the different things that we sell. Those are just similarly discreetly priced. There's a discrete deliverable, et cetera. So writing, you know, some marketing offerings, or maybe you would get into like doing website builds, something like that, where you say, I'm going to go stand up a WordPress site for you for $10,000 a piece. That's what I think of as productized service. And it is a flavor of freelancing that has certain ups and downs. I think I would personally advocate for a productized service style of freelancing over staff augmentation for a variety of reasons. I don't know how deep we go here on that. Like maybe that's the stuff of a future episode this season about pricing and positioning, but it is an interesting alternative. It can be more profitable and it can be easier to market in a lot of ways. That being said, the thing about a productized service, as I imagine you can attest, is that you have to stock your pipeline a lot more you're having to bring in a lot more business because if you're selling a website build for $10,000, let's say, you have to do, you know, what, 10, 15 of those a year if you want to make the kind of money that you do versus a staff augmentation, you might only ever need a gig per year or something. So and I think that would cover a fair amount of ground, like training, writing, content creation, certain marketing or build offerings or productized services. Yeah, absolutely. The nice thing about productized service is the difference between that and just plain old services is that you're saying it's like choosing a product off the shelf. So you don't go to the supermarket and say, wow, I really like this brand of peanut butter, but I'd like it to be 20% chunky. Here and you go negotiate with the <laughs> cashier. Can you just add more peanuts to this? Clearly not, right? It's in the ceiling that you either take or you don't. <laughs> and so, practice consulting is similar. You have this thing that you're offering and people either take it or they don't. They accept the price or they don't, at least in theory. Obviously, the world's a complex and messy place, but basically that's the way it's supposed to work. So with me, with training, like companies come to me and they say, we want to do intro Python. I say, great, that's four days, such and such a price, this many people, and they either take it or they leave it. And obviously there'll always be a little bit of adjustments, but very much less so than if I go to my lawyer and say, I want you to drop a contract for me, because that's going to be very specialized and very different each time someone talks to him. 
Yeah, speaking of, I guess, custom stuff, I can think of a couple more flavors. One is where maybe you're doing custom project work, but not really in a staff augmentation capacity. And what I mean is if you take what I was saying as a product I service, like, you know, stand up a WordPress site for you with the following characteristics for 10K, maybe instead of that, you're building custom sites for people and your ticket price there is probably high figures, maybe six figures or high five figures or maybe six figures. But you go into that doing custom application development. Crucially, you're not a staff augmentation because you're owning this project. Somebody's coming to you and saying, I want you to build this thing for me. And the scope there maybe isn't known, the pricing can get interesting, but there is a discrete end to that. They're not bringing you in as a little bit of extra labor. They're bringing you in to accomplish something. So that's like custom project consulting. And then there's another thing that I did for a lot of years in the form of management consulting, which I would, I guess, maybe in a sense call true consulting, being paid for advice. So companies would bring me in to help them make decisions about what to do with code bases or how to build an org chart or something. And in those situations, when I had that practice, my deliverable to them was typically something like a write-up or a presentation to the board of directors or something along those lines where I was just telling them what to do. So you've got like custom project work and then like, I feel bad bad, like it's elitist to call it true consulting. I just don't know what else to call it because of how often the terms consulting and contracting get kind of conflated. But the idea of being paid for pure advice. It's really funny you're saying that because in Israel in particular, people would ask me at some point, oh, do you do projects or do you consulting? And I would always think it is consulting when I do projects. Like, what are they talking about? And then I understood that culturally people here, when you say I'm a consultant, they just mean advice. They don't mean doing all that other stuff. There are other terms for freelancing, contracting, you name it. And right, the consulting is come in. Like I had a company ask me to do this like two, three years ago. Some people in the U.S. were interested in buying a web development firm in Israel. So they wanted me to come in, talk to people, like interview them, and then write up a report should they or should they not make this purchase. And it was different than things I'd done before, but it was kind of fun. Yeah, I always liked those kind of gigs. I mean, being brought in as an expert to offer advice, you command a level of respect. So if like you're an employee and then you go off on your own and you're kind of acting as a staff augmentation as a pair of hands, then you're often going to be treated as like an employee and you have a quote boss at the company. But I guess the more they're leveraging you for your expertise or advice, there's a different way that you're treated. They're kind of bringing you in as an expert, especially if they found you because you're giving a talk or doing something along those lines. They come to you and say, help me, tell me what to do. And that's a pretty nice way to make a living. I enjoyed doing that for a number of years. I tell people what to do for free. So being paid for it is even better. (laughs) (laughs) And then I guess there's one other thing I could mention, which is just that if you are doing like custom project work or a productized service or something, then maybe at the outer edge of all of this, you start to become an agency owner. And I would argue at this point, you're kind of leaving the purview of freelancing. Like once you start to hire other people, you're becoming a business owner or an agency owner or something, but there is going to be kind of an in-between area where maybe you're just flexing up work to other subcontractors, you know, bringing someone along for the ride to help you on a custom project. So there is this situation where you're freelancing, but you're also bringing in other help, maybe short of being just a full-on business owner. Well, that's the wrong way to put it because as a freelancer, you incorporate, like you have a form of business. So I don't mean to say it that way, but I typically think of freelancers as basically individual practitioners that have their own single-person business. Whereas if you start to hire employees and 
and stuff, there's kind of a different feel. People stop calling that a freelancer. Yeah. Like when I first started freelancing, I saw it as a stepping stone to having this large army of people working under me, going out and doing <laughs> lots of software projects. And I got up to about five employees. And that was just before the dot-com implosion of 2000. And I laid them off. And in sort of trying to deal with the frustrations, anger, and so forth of what had happened and picking up the pieces, I basically told my wife, okay, I think I understand now. I don't want to have employees. Like, what a mess. And then there was this period of about 10 years when I would have one employee helping me out with projects. And then I finally ended that with him. And so now I'm completely on my own. And it's a, a totally different mindset. I'm not aiming to hire lots of people. I'm not aiming to have the, the learner office towers. I'm <laughs> aiming to do things that are fulfilling for myself. At the same time, I've been talking with someone about expanding my courses and how I do them. And he said to me, if you really want to get to seven figures and above, you're going to need a team. I said, a team? Oh my God, I really don't want to hire people. He said, oh yeah, like you'll need a virtual assistant. You'll need someone to answer your email. You'll need, I'm like, oh, that's like basically me then hiring subcontractors who are specialists in certain things that I can't, don't want to do like graphic design. But that's still, I think, called like freelancing plus or, or something along those lines. I definitely think there's a gray area there. I don't know at what point you stop being called a freelancer. I do think that like the common thing people think of when they hear that term is, you know, gig oriented type work, usually a solo practitioner. But yeah, I suppose there's this in-between area where, you know, bringing on certain kinds of help or whatever. But yeah, that's interesting. Like, I wouldn't say if somebody was like freelancing doing like web development or something and they brought in a VA, I don't know that you would stop being a freelancer at that point or a freelancer that's brought in someone to help you with some tasks. Right. So it's interesting how much gig work has kind of spread through the economy, if you will, because like being a VA or a certain kind of specialist like this would be another form of freelancing. So I don't know, there's this kind of mix and match. You can, out of like gig oriented freelancers, you can build a business without taking on staff. I mean, look at all these people doing deliveries, doing driving, uh, ride sharing and so forth. You could argue, and certainly the companies that quote unquote employ them argue, those are not employees at all. Those are all freelancers. They're <laughs> running their own businesses. Oh, okay. I think that's arguable, but fine. But right, it takes all shapes and sizes. And now the internet obviously has made it much easier for people to do at least that sort of low level freelancing. That's definitely closer to the staff augmentation, the driver staff augmentation, as opposed <laughs> to high level strategic consulting on what route to take to get to. So, I mean, I think that covers at least the different kinds or flavors of freelancing I can think of. And maybe we can dive then into a little bit like a day in the life of a freelancer or maybe like a business cycle, if you will. Like we should talk a little bit about what that looks like compared to say salaried employment. And I think the biggest thing is as we talk through all these things you have to keep in mind is when you show up at work as say a graphic designer, typically almost all of your time is going to be spent doing graphic design. I mean, you might go to some status meetings or have certain points of interface, but the expectation is that like nearly 100% of your time is going to be spent in trade doing like technician oriented work. Whereas when you go off on your own, there are aspects of the business that were always taken care of for you by other people in your salaried role that you now have to assume. And that's going to include marketing your business, doing sales, doing the books, things of that nature. So I'm trying to think of maybe the best way to tackle it, but if I think of like, do you want to walk through it in terms of end-to-end -end, the life cycle of a customer is like, or, you know, gig-to-gig, -gig, what do you think is a good way to tackle this? Yeah, I mean, like, in my case, there's not that much difference because like, I'll have a new customer and then I'll have continuing customers. So like last week, out of the blue, I got five phone calls and emails from different companies interested in me doing some training for them. 
So first of all, I have to talk to them. I spoke to each of them on the phone, right? Some of them contacted me via LinkedIn. Some of them contacted me via phone. Some contacted me via email. So all those communication channels have to be monitored. That's already something you got to be doing. And then I had to schedule time. So got to have my calendar. And I use Calendly, this you know external program that lets me do that and make sure that it doesn't conflict with other things. And then we had a phone call. And then we started talking about what I do, what are their needs. In one case, it was actually a training company. And as soon as I understood that, I said, oh, I don't think this is going to work. And she said, why not? I said, because I work directly with big companies and what I take now in terms of a, a fee is probably what you would be taking or more. And I told her what I'm making and she said, oh yeah, we could never afford that. Like, good for you. So weeding out those people, like you got to have those phone calls that are going to go nowhere. I had a phone call with someone where it was like totally preposterous. I can't believe I actually took this phone call, but okay, fine. You got to <laughs> take the good with the bad. And then once, let's say it seems like you're on the same track, you might have to have one more phone call. You might have five more phone calls. You might have none. And they might just say, email us a proposal and we'll move forward. So of those five companies, one wasn't going to work out because the pricing. One was going to work out because they were a bozo. Another basically <laughs> seems like a flaky guy who'll get back to me in a few months. But two of them are like super, super interested in doing things. So we're going to move forward and keep talking. And then I have to send them a proposal, money, time, schedule, blah, 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 blah. Then they have to onboard me as a supplier to their company. And we have to agree on syllabus and so forth. Then I actually do the real work. Then I show up and I actually teach the course I'm going to do. Then I have to invoice them and make sure that they've paid and give all the accompanying documentation to my accountant who has a bookkeeper who does this stuff for me. And then I can say, hey, how about we do another course? Either they ask me or I ask them. And I try to upsell them on if we did into a Python, another six months, let's do advanced Python, so forth. So all of those things, as Eric said, in a normal company, as it were, you're doing one piece of that. And when you're freelancing, you have to do all those things. Now, in addition, I'll tell you, it was probably like two, three years ago, my accountant, when we were having our annual review of my statements, he said, Ruben, you're very good at what you do in terms of training, and you are a terrible CEO. And I, of course, bristled at this. And he was like, look, you have to be more on top of the budgeting. You have to be more on top. Like he sees as an accountant that I'm just not on top of that. So everyone's going to have their strengths and weaknesses also. And I see it as, hooray, I paid the mortgage and we have money in the bank. But like you should, if you're smart about it, be much more strategic and thinking forward. Anyway, what is similar and different in what you do or what you've done in the past? Yeah. So, I mean, like these days, the business I own, Hit Subscribe, has employees. Like we've grown. So the sales cycle or, or the day-to-day -day wouldn't apply so much. But if I think back to the specialized management consulting practice I had, mine was a lot more gig-oriented. There were often longer gaps between the kind of projects that I would take on. So the projects would be extremely high-paying, but like I might not have for a few weeks at a time or something, or I might be juggling a few different things. So one of the things during my consulting that was notable is this idea of feast or famine, because it wouldn't be that just like, you know, once a month I spent a week trying to do a sales interview or a sales call with people, and then a couple weeks of work and then a wrap up. And then the next one just materialized. Usually it was three things would call me at once and I wouldn't have time for that. And I'd be trying to get one to, you know, Hey, can we start in a month or two? But I guess if I think in general about it, there was, similar to you, sales cycles, you'd get tire kickers, you would get conversations that seemed fruitful, and then they would ghost you. Because by the way, listeners, if you think you get ghosted a lot after job interviews, the decent thing to do would be to, you know, follow up with you. Nobody feels that obligation towards vendors. One thing to bear in mind is that when you go freelance, you become your own business, and people are a lot less hesitant to treat business owners like crap in that sense. So they'll do a tire kicking call, and then you'll never hear from them again. Or maybe four months later, 
later, they call you up out of nowhere. They're like, all right, I'm ready to get started. I mean, you just have to kind of get used to that. You have to get used to the overwhelming majority of work that you do, especially at first on the sales front and proposal creation and all this. You're going to waste a lot of work. There's just no doubt about it. And I say wasted work in the sense that you'll create proposals and have calls with people that never become customers. You will, through the process, get better at that, better at disqualifying bad business, more efficient at generating proposals and all that. But there is a lot of work to bring in the customers. And that's not including marketing concerns like, you know, building a website or going out and giving talks or that kind of thing. So there's the sales and marketing piece, which I'd spend a good bit of time on. In my practice, the actual service delivery kind of varied. Towards the end, I made the engagements typically shorter and shorter, or I took on retainer gigs. But early on, I might go and do something for a few months months at a time. And during the service delivery, you're mostly focused on what you're doing, but you're still, you know, taking phone calls or whatever for the next gig that's coming up. So there's an element of managing your leads and customers and former customers with the work that you're doing. And then there's post engagement. So any follow-up that's necessary, especially if you've agreed to stay on to consult for a while or something. And then, you know, if you're doing this well, you ought to check in from time to time with them to see how you're doing, both to be a good service provider and because there's no one it's easier to sell to than a previous satisfied client. So all of that would be in the regular like seasons of the business, if you will. And then there's things that come up more periodically, like legal, you know, you go and engage with some company that demands that you carry insurance or sign a contract. So you're probably going to want at least to know who your lawyer is in case you need to ask for some advice. You got to do your taxes periodically. So there are these occasional annoyances that you have to deal with. And all of this layered on top of making sure that you're staying competitive and continuing to develop your offering and not just doing the same things over and over. So there's a lot to juggle. I'm trying to like, do you have a sense of what the ratio of time that you spend that is billable, so to speak, versus, you know, like how much total time you spend on your business? So normally, like pre-pandemic times, I was probably doing a good 80 to 90% of the actual course delivery. That was because I wasn't really developing a lot of new courses and things were coming in. Like I didn't have to worry a lot about sales and marketing. I had to deal with bookkeeping and invoicing, but that was mostly automated at this point. And or I just handled a pile of papers to my accountant's bookkeeper every month and they roll their eyes. But if I were doing it smarter, then I would spend much more time on outreach, trying to get new clients. And that's somewhere I've been, on the one hand, spoiled. On the other hand, very bad at. I'm spoiled in that I don't need to because my name has gotten out enough. And Israel is a small enough country and people in high tech switch jobs enough that every time I ask someone, where did you hear of me? They say, oh, you used to work at such and such a company and they knew you, so they recommended you. When you get to that stage, it's very comfortable and nice. But I'm trying to break into new markets. And actually, just before recording, like over the last few days, I've started trying to reach out a little bit to people like cold calling, cold emailing them. It is hard, no matter how long you've been doing this and frustrating and painful. And if you don't have anyone referring you and if no one knows who you are, that's what you're going to be doing at the beginning. And you're going to be spending easily 70% of your time trying to get your name out. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, this is really going to vary. So once you're established, if you've got a good reputation, at least the time to do prospecting, generate leads and new business goes way down. But if you were to just quit your job today with no plan, hang out your shingle to freelance, you'd spend pretty much all of your time trying to find customers. So it can really vary. And actually, now that I think about it, mine would vary a lot too. Like when I was doing longer gigs, obviously, then you're spending a lot more of your time on the service delivery versus other aspects of the business, which sounds great. But like if you are doing one 
client protracted gig, that's what's known as a whale client. So right now for three months, four months, you only have one client, assuming you weren't on a contract, then the next day you wouldn't be making money or whatever. I guess that's really going to vary throughout anybody's listening time. But I think that no matter how efficient you get, how much business is coming to you, there's going to be a certain ceiling on how much of your time can be pure service delivery because you own a business and no matter how efficient you get or how much you reduce the time you're spending managing that, you still own a business and that's non-zero time to do. Here's an imperfect analogy. If you own a home, most of the time you're just living in the home, but occasionally you'll need to do maintenance. Things will break, you'll need fixing, you'll want to expand something. So that's like the time spent as a homeowner as opposed to a home user. So as a business owner, you're going to have to do that sort of maintenance on your business just as you do on your home. And it might be more, might be less. And at the beginning, you'll be learning how it works. So the vocabulary is to understand what these various experts are telling you. So I like that analogy too, maybe as a transition too into talking about like who would be good for freelancing and who wouldn't, that if you were going to move into a home and do a lot of DIY, presumably at first you wouldn't know how to do that. So there's a lot of like figuring things out and doing them imperfectly on the fly in the beginning. And I think you need to have a decent capacity for being willing to dive into something that's unknown or uncertain and figure it out at least well enough to get it done. And what I mean by that is like, you don't need to figure out how to do your own taxes. You can certainly get an accountant to do that, but you need to figure out well enough how to do that to at least go find an accountant to do it and to understand what to send that person and to mentally note what you need to be more efficient about getting that person your books or whatever the next year. And you're going to have to replicate that across all facets of the business. So you're becoming, I guess, the CEO as a freelancer of a small but like existing business, which means you're going to have to be willing to at least learn something about sales, marketing, finance, taxes, legal all these things that might come up. So I would say it's in the E-Myth Revisited that he talks about the idea of being an entrepreneur versus having an entrepreneurial seizure. And he talks <laughs> about everybody having like three different personalities within them in different proportions, the manager, technician, and the entrepreneur. And without going, I guess, too far into the weeds of that book, the idea is a lot of people enjoy being the technician, which is just where you write your software, or you do your graphic design. And then a lot of people who hang out their freelance shingle aren't really being entrepreneurial they're just tired of having a boss who's telling them to do things they don't agree with about practicing their craft. And if that's you, you should be sensitive to the dynamic that you have to have some entrepreneur in you at least enough to facilitate the technician work. Like if the only reason that you're thinking of freelancing is because you don't like your boss, you don't really have the option of saying, I don't care about finances or I don't care about sales. You have to care about those things. Absolutely. I mean, you're going to have to deal with these things and you're also suddenly going to be responsible as we keep saying for income, right? Like I've been doing this for a while and I feel an incredible sense of accomplishment of, wow, for the last 25 years, we've managed to pay off our mortgage, gone on vacations, we have savings in the bank, and I've managed to do that myself, like without having someone pay my paycheck. But there were many months when it was not so easy, when I would at the end of the month be calling all of my previous clients saying, hey, do you need anything next month? I've got only limited time available, which maybe was a transparent way of saying, please take me on because I have lots of time available. If you have no cushion of income. So if your partner's not making enough, if you have children, which cost a fair amount, if you don't have health insurance, if you have other expenses, freelancing might not be for you. Again, I was lucky that I started doing it when I was single, unmarried, no children, did not own a home. So it was very low risk for me to enter and make a ton of mistakes along the way. If I were to start now, 
three kids. We just paid off the mortgage, but having to deal with that would be a different story altogether. It doesn't mean you can't. It doesn't mean you shouldn't. It means you need to think a little more and make sure that you're not risking everything. Make it a wise bet rather than just rolling the dice. Yeah, I think the way I would conceive of it is like, if you're going to hang out your shingle and freelance, you're going to have to be comfortable with your own set of risk. But you have to assume that for some period of time in the beginning, assume that you'll have no business, assume that you'll have no income. And that has to be okay. Or you're working a salary job and you're lining up your first however many gigs or something. However you tackle that, if you don't have anything lined up, assume that you won't for a while. Because there's a couple of things that are going to happen. Number one is you're going to go off on your own and you may not have anything for a while. But number two, if you go off on your own, you're going to start to get antsy if you haven't planned ahead. And you can get into this vicious cycle of taking bad gigs and taking on bad business. And that can feed back into itself where if you're taking on, you know, work where there's like a lot of scope creep or you're in a contentious situation, you're stressed out, you're working hard to please that client, you're having a bad relationship it's a lot harder to then muster the energy at night to go out and find better clients. So I think that one of the biggest determiners for you, if freelancing is for you in the short term, is can you afford not to have business in the early going? And if the answer to that is no, I'd be really careful about it if you've got mortgage payments coming up and no runway. In that situation, like maybe you're mentally suited to be a freelancer. It's just not yet. So if that describes you and you want to do it, I'd say build up that runway or form a plan or line up, you know, the engagements that you need. But I wouldn't jump off with a safety net, so to speak. And you can also, like, I mean, not every company will allow you to do this in a variety of different ways, but depending on what work you're doing, you might be able to like, work part-time. So work, say, three days a week and try freelancing two days a week or start with one day a week and little by little see what's working and what isn't. The more sort of risk-averse you can be when starting out, again, it depends on what you have to deal with day to day, but it doesn't have to be a complete gamble if you plan ahead enough. Also remember that as a freelancer, and we've mentioned this, you and the business are pretty much the same, which means that the whole idea of work-life balance and how many hours are you working versus not working. So I've got a cousin who's a technical writer and he hates technical writing. Like he doesn't find it exciting at all, but it pays the bills. That's okay because when five o'clock comes around, he's done. He's not dreaming of technical writing. He's not thinking about the products. He's at home. He's with his wife, friends, whatever. Whereas if you're a freelancer, the odds are pretty good that you're thinking about your business all the time and you to think about, can you afford that sort of time? It's not going to be 40 hours a week, certainly not the beginning. And how does your family interact? How much time do they expect you to be around? What can and can't you get away with? And you might need to negotiate this with your family, with your partner as well. I think another thing worth mentioning too is that you have to be okay, not exactly with feast or famine. You can work to sort of smooth out the business that you have coming in, but you have to be okay with uncertainty in a way that you wouldn't as a salaried employee. As a salaried employee, you show up to work every day. You can budget like clockwork. You know exactly how much money is going to come in. The only risk, albeit a very major one, is that your employer would let you go. But if you are running a business, especially in the early going, you are going to have variable income and some months might be less than others. Some months might be boom months. So planning can get harder. I mean, for me, I'm sort of risk averse. So it took a lot of years before this went away, but this kind of constant feeling of, you know, is this house of cards going to crumble on me? Like, you know, I've had a good run here, but like, you know, what if the business dries up, et cetera? You might have stresses at a day-to-day job that are like that, like, oh, I'm worried my boss is unhappy with me or whatever, but there's a kind of like existential undercurrent of potential worry that you have in the job, which isn't me saying that like, unless 
unless you're super easygoing, you're always going to be wholly stressed out. But there's more uncertainty when booking business, planning your finances, et cetera, especially in the early going. So I think you need to be, or at least have a strategy for being Zen about like not knowing exactly how much income you're going to have or how much business you're going to do or how far out you can book. I think after we got married, my wife asked me, so how much money do you make per month? I said, I don't know, it depends. She said, what do you mean? What kind of answer is that? I said, well, it really depends. Like what kind of work I'm doing and how many people pay me. And some of them are net plus 30, 60, some of them don't pay. She was like, that's crazy. <laughs> now, <laughs> and I guess it is because especially if you're coming from the salaried world, not to know how much you're making in a given month, as long as you haven't changed jobs or changed positions is indeed bananas. But I got used to it. And so I got used to, okay, on balance, on average, income will be enough and we'll be fine. Yeah, it's actually a great point. Like I think of this both for my own like consulting practice. However, you're gonna have months with like different amounts of revenue coming in. But once you get established and you start having a history and you get used to it, you can look back and say, well, okay, I have 12, 24, 36 months worth of data. And you start to take comfort in the fact that, yeah, I don't know how much I'm gonna earn this month, but I do know how much I tend to earn on average. And you can start planning against that. And then there's also a point where depending on the nature of what you're doing and how successful you are, you eventually might say, I mean, I've done this in the past is to say, this is the amount that I want to take out of the business each month for personal. And when the business is often or consistently exceeding that, you can start to bank on that a lot more the way you would if you had a job. You can and will get there. It just takes some time. So if somebody that's listening and thinking about freelancing, like maybe as a last thing to cover, would there be any definitive thing to say freelancing probably isn't for you or, you know, words of caution, I guess, not to end on a down note, but maybe to help people make a decision? When I was little, I was like, I'm going to run my own business. I'm going to have this whole thing. And so it was always like in my head that I'm going to do that. I didn't know what it meant, but I was excited by the idea of running my own business. So if you're <laughs> like that and you're willing then to put in the work, then great. But if all you're thinking about, as Eric said, is like, oh boy, my boss is a jerk and an idiot and I could do all this technical stuff better. And if I'm on my own, that might all be true, but that's not sufficient. And you're going to be very frustrated very quickly when you realize that all of your consulting clients are all run by those idiots and jerks who are just like your boss, but now they're the ones paying you or not. And you have to deal with them in multiple companies <laughs> all the time. And also think about your family, risk, runway, all these things. I would say you want to plan. You don't want to just jump into it. But fortunately, you probably can plan, especially if you have a full-time job. You can do some thinking and maybe even some moonlighting to slowly stick your toes into those waters and see how it'll work. Yeah, I love the moonlighting idea. I mean, that's how I actually got started many, many years ago. Like before I fully went off on my own, I would take on moonlighting projects. And that's good because it gives you a taste of it. And also, if you start moonlighting and you set up, you know, a business entity or something, it lets you learn about how to run your business, maybe not all at once. You learn initially how to set up the business entity and maybe find a few clients and then you kind of ease your way into it. So I think the closing piece of advice or consideration I would offer, like a reason not to go into freelancing that we haven't touched on is there's kind of like, a, I think, a cottage industry of people out there that are like, I'll teach you to freelance. And a lot of it is predicated upon selling you a certain lifestyle, be your own boss, work from home. And you can get into like a little bit of shady territory there, I think. My point with this is if somebody has sold you on lifestyle, be your own boss, work from home, work from the beach, 
Yeah, maybe. I'm a digital nomad and like I do, I have a purely remote business, so I do all that, but it doesn't just materialize. And there are real trade-offs associated with doing that. For instance, in a lot of situations, if you're wanting to always work from home in your pajamas, that's going to limit your sales opportunities because there are customers that are going to want you to come in. So it's not that you can't achieve all of the things that you hear about, but it's that they don't come part and parcel with it. It requires hard work. It requires trade-offs. If you're thinking, I want to freelance because it sounds great to work from the beach or work in my pajamas, I'd reevaluate your motives there because there's no magic path to a great lifestyle. You have to work for that. There's that old saying was the 10-year overnight success where, oh, wow, how did that person get so successful? Oh, yeah, they put in a lot of work ahead of time. Yeah, 100%. So shall we do picks? Let's do picks. Go for it. You got anything interesting this week? Well, just because it came up topically, one of the things I would recommend is checking out the book, The E-Myth Revisited. And it is generally a book about building a business, but I think back, I've actually listened to it on audiobook twice. And I think it applies pretty well to anybody that's considering a freelance practice or a solopreneur type practice. It will walk you through a lot of ideas in and around kind of understanding, I guess, the psychology in, in different parts of time that you're going through and building your business. And it, I think, establishes a lot of good definitions around a phrase you'll hear a lot, working on your business versus in your business. So I'd give that a read because it sort of surfaces the good and the bad of business ownership and is designed to like, I forget how he puts it, but it was basically, he wrote this book to sort of get despairing business owners, solopreneurs, whatever, out of a slog and like back in control of their business. So it's good for surfacing probably the pitfalls and giving you a framework for success. And that's it for me. So I'm going to recommend a book that could be about business, but isn't necessarily about it, called High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. It's by this journalist named Amanda Ripley. And I read a book of hers a few years ago called The Smartest Kids in the World about schools in Poland, South Korea, and Finland, and how they ran and how they were good and bad. And I love that book. And when I heard she was coming out with a new book, I ran to get it. And this book is truly one of the best books I've read in a long time. It's about how do we deal with politics, the pandemic, anything. It's what do you do with people who are just talking past each other, who are so furious with each other and won't listen to each other. And basically, like, how do you try to untangle that situation? How do you try to work toward resolution as opposed to just the schadenfreude of, haha, the other side is feeling pain. I must have won. And really eye-opening, interesting book. And I thought about it a lot, not just at the national, international and political level, but also the interpersonal level as well, where she quotes someone there saying, that when embarrassing someone is the nuclear bomb of our emotions. And I'm like, wow, that really makes me think about things I've said and things that have been said to me. So I highly recommend it. And there we go. That's our show for this week. We are super excited to be back with a third season. We would be delighted to hear from you with suggestions, ideas for topics, for guests, for things we should do. We have also some ideas for shaking the podcast up a little bit and inviting some of you to participate in it in a more interactive way. Follow us on Twitter, take a look at our show notes, and accept that it's the business of freelancing. And we'll be back next week with the business of freelancing. <laughs>